Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. When Angela Merkel wanted somebody to lead the European Central Bank, she decided to try to recruit the head of the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, and she successfully recruited Christine Lagarde, who is now the head of the European Central Bank, the first woman to head the Central Bank, but also one of the most influential people in the global world of finance. I had a conversation with her about how Europe is recovering from COVID and also how Europe is recovering from its economic slowdown. So as we now look at the post-COVID environment, what would you say is the situation in Europe? Is Europe recovering more rapidly or not quite as rapidly as you thought from the COVID uh, pandemic? Actually, David, Europe is recovering more rapidly than we had anticipated. And we have, as a result of that, uh, significantly upgraded our projections. So our projection for this year is plus 5%. So it's a significant upgrade. Uh, plus 4.6% 4, 4, 4. next year, and uh, back to sort of a pre-COVID type of, of growth uh, subsequently. But this year is certainly going faster than we had thought, to the point uh, where we will have recovered to pre-COVID-19 uh, levels before the end of the year, 2021. We had anticipated it would be early 22 at best. It's now going to be in 21. Well, are you worried about the Delta variant Im impacting what you've just said or the so-called Mu variant, which is now something that's on the horizon? Mm. It, it's very closely related. We used to say that the best economic policy was an accelerated vaccination rollout. Well, we are still uh, in that situation where vaccination matters enormously. But on that front, Europe has done quite well. Uh, we have more than 70% of the, uh, the adult population that is completely vaccinated in the euro area. And some countries are doing actually better than that in excess of 80%. Uh, that, that has been a significant boost uh, for growth and it has helped governments not go back to uh, the stringent containment measures that we had seen previously. So during uh, COVID, were you working uh, remotely? I mean, were you running the European Central Bank from one of your homes or from a home somewhere? or were you really going into the office? I spent quite a few weeks uh, stuck in my Frankfurt apartment during the first wave of COVID. And actually the uh, very sizable uh, package that we put together for monetary policy purposes was engineered around my kitchen table. Uh, subsequently, when traveling was um, more flexible and we could move out, then I, I went to the office uh, a bit uh, but in the main, um, 
you know, the, the by default solution is remote working still today and probably until the end of January. And then we will see. Well, you should take that kitchen table, move it to your office. Obviously, it was very productive, right? <laughs> so um, let me ask you, post-COVID, do you expect Europeans will go back to work at the same levels before in terms of going to work five days a week? Or will people work four days a week, one day remotely, or just four days a week of work? You know, David, first of all, we should all acknowledge that there are people who do not have the luxury of choice. Uh, that have to go to work because their physical presence is required. You know, you think about hospital um, staff, you think about construction workers, you think about some people working in shops. They they don't have the choice. They have to be on site and at work and showing up. In you know offices, uh, I think we are heading towards a hybrid movement where part of the week will be spent in the office so that people can meet, can see each other, can hold uh, regular meetings and uh, and have face-to-face contact. But the rest of the week will likely be working from home. So whether it's 50%, 50%, whether it's 40%, 60% is up for debate and is going to be handled at company levels, I suppose, because most of the legal constraints have been lifted at this point in time. But people have learned during the pandemic, and those learnings will be uh, bottled in and used for future for future way of working. So around the kitchen table that we just made famous, uh, you were talking about, uh, you put together a package that was designed to uh, make Europe uh, solve their economic problems as it dealt with COVID. The United States had a similar package. Um, in hindsight, would you say the package worked as well as you thought, not as well or better than you thought? You know, when we put it together, we, we were hopeful that it would work. But, you, you, you know, <laughs> truth of the pudding is in the eating. And uh, it was a matter of days before we really uh, appreciated that message was received. Fiscal authorities began to act in tandem and in good coordination as well. And I think the impact of next generation EU, when all Europeans decided to go and borrow together jointly, uh, these, these, this entire package actually uh, responded well and fast and big uh, to the unbelievable crisis situation that we faced. So all in all, I think it, it worked um, well, and it certainly, we responded, I think, faster and better than we had in 2008 and then in 2011 in the European sovereign debt crisis. In the United States, uh, not just to cite the United States all the time, but it's the country I'm most familiar with, we've had some challenges uh, during COVID that people who were minorities, often uh, women, people of lower income strata, they couldn't get access to broadband. They didn't have that. And they had child care problems and so forth. And it's thought that they fell further and further behind. Did you find the same phenomenon in Europe? Yeah, this, this has been the case in Europe as well, where uh, inequalities uh, in terms of opportunities, in terms of uh, facilities, have been aggravated and probably exacerbated by COVID-19 for the reasons that you've mentioned. Uh, those people worst hit by pandemic were women, uh, were young people, were people on uh, fixed term and temp uh, contracts, and and those you know were more remote from work than than the others. And if you look at those who lost their jobs, uh, it's predominantly those those. Uh, women and, and young people in particular, 
uh, in disproportionate amount relative to the others. So as you look at the European economy today, what would you say its single biggest challenge is and what would you say its single biggest opportunity is? I think the single biggest challenge always is uh, to deliver, is to implement. There are lots of good intentions, uh, but implementation sometimes is, 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 is hard. I think the second um, difficult area that will need to be tackled is this issue of inequality, because COVID-19 has aggravated inequalities. The third one is um, climate change, where we will have to transition probably faster than we think, which will imply a transition cost, which will imply a change in, in the overall structure of our economies. I would say those three, implementation, inequality, and, uh, and climate change. And what has been the impact on the European Central Bank or the European economy, if any, on Brexit? Um, has it been as bad as some people predicted or been uh, better than people thought? What would you say? Uh, I think the conclusion varies depending on which side of the channel you're on. Um, you know, from our perspective, it, it's a sad development, and we certainly um, have lost the benefit of excellent cooperation with the Bank of, of England. We try to continue to maintain a good relationship because, because you know, uh, we, we have lots of links between us. But in terms of trade, uh, it has been certainly a loss for the UK, more so than uh, for, the, for Europe. And, and we'll see how it goes. All I can say is at this point in time, Europe is, is coming out of the crisis, um, with, with, not with flying colors yet, because a lot of work needs to be done, but uh, strongly than we had expected. I think the UK is, is, is having a, a more difficult time at the moment. A part of the uh, way you helped deal with the situation in Europe post during COVID was that uh, you had the package that you referred to, a very large package, uh, financial stability package. But that package really involves countries borrowing money against against their their own abilities to pay it back. You are, in effect, a, not a guarantor, but you are making certain that, that they probably won't default. Uh, but are you worried about too much debt among European countries, too much debt in France or, or Germany or Italy, or is that not a big problem right now? You know, I think all countries around the world increase uh, and had to increase uh, their debt relative to GDP. And when you had this high debt increase and, and a, a, a big fall in GDP, for, of course, you, you end up with those ratios that look that look um, higher and are higher than what they experienced before. But there was no option and no choice but to do that. Um, had it not happened, I think the story of the, uh, the pandemic would have been a lot worse than what we've seen. So now it's a question of directing the, um, the financing to the right investment, making sure that the economies are going to bounce back in the right shape with the right uh, uh, structural reforms that will improve uh, the, uh, the productivity of those economies, that will position them to be more digital and to, to, be, to be greener. And uh, I believe that this next generation EU, which was voted uh, a, a year ago now, uh, is going to help with making countries better converge and reduce the gap that existed between some of the southern European countries 
and the northern European countries. That is certainly the intention. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Recently, you said that you would like to have a, a goal, a target of getting 2% inflation. Why has it been so difficult to get to that level for the last five, six or seven years or so in Europe? And how confident are you that you can get to 2%? I think there are multiple reasons uh, for that, uh, David, but certainly uh, what we decided to do was to have a target which was simple, which was uh, um, easy to understand, that was uh, symmetric, and that also was focused on the medium term. So those were the three attributes. So instead of having that complicated close to but below 2%, uh, which was a bit uncertain and fuzzy, and which included somehow a, an, an implied bias, we decided that we would go for something straightforward, simple, 2%, 2% symmetric. So deviation up or down from 2% are equally undesirable. That's the definition that we have agreed upon. And we are also uh, on, on this medium term, which matters most because we are particularly concerned about inflation expectations. I think that that decision plus the forward guidance that we also decided a few weeks after the strategy review of the European Central Bank was released, was convincing enough so that markets and, and analysts and observers have appreciated that we are serious. We mean business. We want 2%. Uh, and, you know, I mean, there are lots of subtleties around the 2% and the, uh, the lower bound, which, which uh, leads us to having a more forceful uh, response in some instances. But yes, we mean business and we mean 2% for sure. So for hundreds of years, governments and central banks have issued currency and the currency is used for things to buy things, sell things and so forth and to price assets. Now some people have come along and invented various things called cryptocurrencies. Uh, central banks are trying to adjust to what that means for them. So do you think that cryptocurrencies are a plus for the global economy or is it too early to tell? Cryptos are not currencies, full stop. Cryptos are highly speculative assets that claim their fame as currency, possibly, but they're not. They are not. I think we have to distinguish between cryptos that are those highly speculative, um, suspicious occasionally, and uh, high intensity in terms of energy consumption, assets, but they're not a currency. On the other hand, you have those stable coins that are beginning to proliferate, which some big techs are trying to promote and, and push along the way, uh, which are a different animal and need to be regulated where there has to be oversight that corresponds to the business that they are actually conducting, irrespective of how they um, name themselves. And in all that, you have the central banks uh, who are prompted by uh, demand of customers 
to produce something that will make these, the, the, the central bank and central bank currencies fit for the century we are in, which is why we are now all looking at CBDC, central bank digital currencies, so that instead of having uh, banknotes and cash in our pockets or in our wallet, we can have exactly the same thing, but in a digital form. So all of us are working on this, and certainly I was keen to push uh, the, the CBDC uh, issue on our agenda, because I believe that we, we have to stand ready for that. So if the ECB, like the Federal Reserve, also looking at it, if the ECB were to have a digital currency, would that be to the exclusion of paper currencies, or it would be uh, side by side? Side by side, because we want customers to have their preference. If they still want to hold those uh, banknotes and cash, fine, and it should continue uh, to be available and around. You served two terms as the head of the IMF, and you could have served another term if you had wanted to do so. Um, how do you compare the pleasure of running the IMF with the pleasure of running a European, the European Central Bank? Is one more enjoyable than the other, or one's less enjoyable than the other, or basically they're both great jobs and you're happy you have had both of them? David, I'm extremely privileged to have had the role that I had as head of the IMF. And uh, we, we saw each other quite often in those days, and, and you know how much uh, I put my heart, my brain, and, and my, my whole energy into the job, and, and I've enjoyed it tremendously. I'm doing the same thing with the ECB, and I'm doing the same thing on the European scene. And, you know, it's in times when you see geopolitical opposition, in times when you see uh, some, some energy withdrawn behind borders, it's important to have this, this desire to unite and to bring consensus to the table and to, um, you know, convince people that what we're doing together, united, is going to be stronger than what we will do individually in our little corner. So I'm, I'm enjoying what I'm doing as well. It's hard. It's hard, let's face it, but, but I'm enjoying it. Well, when you were the head of the IMF, you were the first woman to hold that position. Uh, now you're the first woman to hold the position of the head of the European Central Bank. So you've obviously broken through in many cases. You're also the head of your law firm, and you're the first woman to head your law firm, a large international law firm. At this point in your life, do you feel discrimination against you in your professional life as a woman, or do you think discrimination generally is receded against women in the professional workplace? I think discrimination has not receded, David. And I'm not, I don't want to take my personal um, situation because um, when you've, you've traveled the journey, I have traveled. Uh, it's difficult to hold open discrimination against me, let's face it. But I'm very, very much aware of discriminations against many women, many young women, many women in all parts of the world. And I'm particularly, I'm sorry to say, I'm particularly thinking of the Afghan women at the moment uh, who clearly are suffering the worst possible nightmare and setback uh, in, 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 their, in their history and in their life. So it's a constant uh, struggle. It should be a constant fight of all of us to make sure that everybody has a chance uh, to accomplish their talent and to develop uh, their, their, um, their activity in the way they want. And this is certainly not the case yet. And look, when I sit at my governing council table and I look around, I see 23 men and one woman in addition to me. So two to 23 is not a very good ratio. And in the finance world, uh, I don't know whether you would call it discrimination, but it, there is certainly disparity 
uh, between men and women. If you look at the venture capital world, it's the same. If you look at uh, CEOs of large international banks, it's the same. If you look at parliament, you have a much lower representation of women than there are women in society. So something is not working. Now, central bankers are famous for not talking in, in language that the average person can understand generally. Uh, and sometimes they've done that on purpose. You talk in a language that everybody seems to understand. It's very simple and so forth. Um, is that a conscious policy that you have uh, that kind of make what you're doing understandable to the average person? Yes. Yes, David. I think I think it's, it's extremely important that people understand what we're doing. Uh, a lot has to do with trust. If somebody talks to you in a completely obscure and jargonic language, how are you going to trust that person? So it, it, to me, it was critically important to agree with the governing council members that we would communicate in a more understandable, in a clearer and simpler way. So just to give you an example, after each governing council, we issue a monetary policy statement. Well, we committed to keep sentences short, to have one idea per sentence, uh, to make sure that the, the words that we use are understandable by uh, you, of course, but a normal person as well. And, uh, and, and we measure that and we try to stick to those principles and, uh, and we'll be held accountable. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. So do you think your ability to do that and the Federal Reserve Chairman Jay Powell is interested in that as well. Both of you are trained as lawyers. Um, so do you think that lawyers, I'm trained as a lawyer too, do you think there's a greater future for central bankers to be headed by or to be lawyers and there's some hope for me to be a central banker someday or not really? <laughs> oh, I'm sure you would thrive. Uh, and I think, I, think I, I strongly believe in diversity, David, as you know. And uh, the diversity has not all to do with gender, with minority, with uh, um, sexual orientation or whatever. It also has to do with the background, with the training, with the culture that you carry with you. And to bring it all together around a table with diversity, in my view, improves the quality of the decisions that we make. And I learn a lot from my colleagues, uh, brilliant economists, and I hope they can be patient with us poor lawyers. Two final questions. Uh, one, uh, I would like to know what, what is the pleasure of being the head of the central bank? You obviously have to work seven days a week. You did that for many years in your career, the IMF as well. What is the pleasure you get out of heading the European Central Bank? You know, it's the same kind of pleasure that I take uh, in leading other organizations is making sure that people around me are uh, doing the best they can for the organization, are delivering on their mission, and that we form a team heading in the same direction. So that, that to me means an awful lot. So my final question is really this. You, as a, in your youth, were a synchronized swimmer, where you have to, I guess, work very closely with teammates and get everything working together quite nicely. Um, 
is it the case that when you're you're doing the central banking role, you have to have the same kind of skill set. You've got all these central bankers that are of each country. You have to get them to work together. So do you think your synchronized swimming skills actually come to help you as the head of the European Central Bank? Yes, they do, actually. Because what you learn in synchronized swimming is that uh, if each individual is brilliant, it's great. But if they don't work together, you will not get the gold medal. So working together as a team actually matters enormously. And I'm, I've, I've tried and I will try to continue doing so. Thanks for listening. To hear more of my interviews, you can subscribe and download my podcast on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.